Jesus speaks and says, for it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. And the one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents, but the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I've made five more talents. And his master said to him, Oh, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. And his master said to him, well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seeds. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. For for to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave... Thrown into the, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O oh Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Perhaps one of the most familiar and to some one of the greatest pieces of symphonic music is Beethoven's Ninth Symphony that starts out with that great sequence of notes. Dun 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 dun. Dun 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 dun. Better if Jonathan played it, but. Oh, this. Okay, okay. Thank you. I appreciate that help. Well, After all that, it is an unforgettable piece of music. I read a while back the description of the symphony offered by one person, and she said the following. I could actually distinguish the cornets, the royal of the drums, deep-toned violas and violins singing in exquisite unison, how the lovely speech of the violins flowed and plowed over the deepest tones of the other instruments. When the human voices leapt up, thrilling from the surge of harmony, I recognized them instantly as voices more ecstatic, up-curving, swift and flame-like, until my heart almost stood still. The women's voices seemed an embodiment of all the angelic voices rushing in a harmonious flood of beautiful and inspiring sound. Then all the instruments and voices together burst forth and died away like winds when the atom is spent, ending in a delicate shower of sweet notes. 
Now, I thoroughly enjoy listening to orchestral music, but there is simply no way I could come up with that kind of description for any piece of music. So it is rather humbling to know that the description I just shared with you was offered by none other than Helen Keller, totally deaf and blind Helen Keller, listening to this great music, kneeling down in her home with the cover of the speaker off and with her hand on the membrane of the speaker listening to the vibrations. This is how she heard the symphony composed by Ludwig van Beethoven, who of course was deaf when he composed it and deaf when it was performed. Now, when I first came upon that story and imagined that living room where Helen Keller sat with her family and pictured her kneeling next to the speaker with her hand on the vibrating membrane, hearing things that likely I couldn't hear today with my albeit limited hearing, it made me think about the gifts we have and the gifts we don't. The story of Helen Keller astounded the global village after at 19 months she lost both her hearing and vision from a childhood virus. At age seven, young Anne Sullivan entered her life and began to teach her how to sign, how to read braille, and how to write. Helen Keller completed high school and entered Radcliffe College of Harvard University and became the first deaf blind person to ever receive a Bachelor of Arts degree. From there, she became a fierce advocate for the disabled. She was named by Time Magazine as one, of the most, uh, as one of the 100 most important people of the 20th century. Her story became a Broadway play and an Academy Award winning movie. Helen Keller composed a story for her life that focused on the gifts she had and not on the gifts she didn't. Which raises an interesting question. Is the story of your life focused on the gifts you have or on the gifts you don't. I think to be a human being is to be susceptible to viewing life in relative terms. I am who I am relative to those around me. That the value of my gifts is found in relationship to the value of other gifts around me. That the abundance of my gifts is determined by the abundance of gifts around me. Like that story of the man who played in the national orchestra of his country. He was a piccolo player and there came the night when the king was in the audience and the orchestra played the best it ever played and the piccolo piece was played to perfection. So well did they play that the king was overwhelmed at what he heard. And when the performance was over, the king stood up and said, this concert was so beautiful, I owe you an enormous debt of gratitude. In fact, what I will do is to show my appreciation is that I will fill each of your instruments with gold from my treasury. There I stood, said the man in the back row, with my piccolo. <laughs> it doesn't take much to view our lives in relative terms and to be quickly discouraged by what we don't have. Maybe that's the question at hand in Jesus' great story of the servants and their talents, the three servants who have been given by their master talents to oversee while the master is gone. Talents were a lot of money. Roughly, roughly we are talking about one talent equaling, in today's money, $750,000. One servant is given five of those talents. Another servant is given two of those talents. And the third servant is given one talent. None of them are given instruction, however, over what to do with them. Just take care of them, the master says. So the five-talent guy invests the five talents and makes five talents more. 
The second talent guy invests the two talents and makes two talents more. The third servant goes conservative and puts his one talent under his mattress. Now, if you call up a financial advisor and read him this story, you'll likely get a certain interpretation, something about investment strategy to one aggressive, the other one conservative, and you'll likely hear something about risk tolerance. What is your risk tolerance? Investing has a lot to do with your risk tolerance, which explains the choice that the one-talent guy, the piccolo guy, makes about what to do with his one talent. He has little tolerance for risk, so he buries the talent in the ground. And maybe he's focused not on what he has to invest, but on what he doesn't. I was afraid, he says to the master upon his return. I was afraid. I saw what little I had and saw how much I didn't. And I was afraid. It's interesting, isn't it, what fear can do to the use of our gifts. Life has its way of bearing our gifts. Life has this way of making us worry more about the return on the investment than on the investment. So many of our gifts go unused because we are afraid of how they will be received. Emily Dickinson was one of the great American poets. She wrote over 1,800 poems during her short life. You heard one today, and of those 1,800 poems, she chose only to publish 10 of them before she died. And the 10 she published, she felt obliged to rewrite, to conform with the style of the time. She died without releasing her most treasured poems to the world. There was a season in my ministry when I baked bread for parishioners. I always thought that would be a nice gift of care and compassion, but I could never figure out how to bake a really good loaf of bread, and I took the hint when a parishioner to whom I had delivered a loaf of bread delivered back to me a week later a bread-baking machine. <laughs> I took the hint and stopped baking. Our doubts are traitors, Shakespeare wrote in Measure for Measure, and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. I once knew a man named Chuck Matheny. I met him when I was in seminary and serving a church up in New Jersey. Chuck was born with cerebral palsy, and much of Chuck's life meant that he had to wake, work, make his way around on crutches and later a wheelchair. All his life, he suffered all the hindering symptoms of cerebral palsy. There's a lot that Chuck would have wanted to do. His parents, in response to their son's condition, built the Matheny School in central New Jersey for disabled children. And Chuck spent most of his life traveling across the world telling people about the Matheny School and telling people that there is no person born for whom God does not have a grand and glorious story. Years ago, he spoke at a high school graduation and said to those teenagers, I cannot correct the way I was born. All I know is that God allowed me to overcome my handicap and appreciate the life he's given me. I have become his tool to help others understand why they are here. Focus on what you have and not on what you don't. I was afraid, said the servant, and with that sentiment comes the assumption that the gifts that God has given us are somehow up for negotiation as to whether we use them. 
which of course ignores the truth about all of our gifts, and that is that God gives them to us to create a world more beautiful than it already is. God gives us our gifts to create a world more beautiful than it already is. Every unused gift, every talent buried in the ground, every skill left dormant is one less chance for the world to be as beautiful as it can be. Remember that great line from Martin Luther King Jr. when he wrote, and when you discover what you will be in your life, set out to do as if God Almighty called you at this particular moment in history to do it. Don't just set out to do a good job. Set out to do such a good job that the living, the dead, or the unborn couldn't do it any better. If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Leontine Price sings before the Metropolitan Opera. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Life is best lived according to the gifts given to us. And each one of those gifts is given that through us the world might become a better and more beautiful place. It makes me think of a painting hanging in our living room at home. It is featured on the cover of your bulletin. <clears throat> it is an original painted by a man named Erwin Ketteman, a German painter in the first half of last century. I bet you dollars to donuts that none of you have heard of Erwin Ketteman. Who heard of Erwin er Ketteman? Ah, y'all owe me donuts. <clears throat> I researched Erwin Ketteman, and as far as I've been able to discover, there's very little anybody knows about Erwin Ketteman. No one knows where he was born. No one knows where he died. No one knows about his family or whether he was married or had children. All we know is that he was a painter. And he painted a lot of paintings similar to the one on that cover, scenes primarily set in the Bavarian Alps. No one has made the case that Erwin Ketterman was of the class and rank of da Vinci or Monet or Van Gogh or Dali. No one imagines that he was even very well known in his own time. But he traipsed out among the Alps and the brooks and the snow and the flowers with his gifts and transferred the beauty around around him onto the canvas before him. And when Mr. Ketterman sat down to paint his painting, this particular painting, how was he to know where it would go? Where would it end up? Would it end up in a trash heap? Would it end up in a storage unit? How was he to know when he set his brush to canvas what might become of his gift? But painted he did, despite not knowing its destiny, which turned out to be found in the eyes of a gentleman from America who wandered into a German studio in 1951. And his eyes fastened onto this painting, the chilly snow on the ground, the warm sun on the mountains, the persistent creek wandering through the deep. And it wasn't da Vinci, of course, and it wasn't a Monet, of course, but he fell in love with it and wanted it at his home to look at, especially on those hot summer Pennsylvania evenings, to help him feel just a little bit cooler. The gentleman was my grandfather. And I can remember all the hours of sitting with granddad in his living room and looking at that painting. And as it turned out, his daughter, my mother, took a liking to it as well, maybe most of all because it was her father's, and maybe also because she knew the story, and maybe also because she just loved the painting. And so she <clears throat> passed that story and love onto her son, moi, into whose possession it eventually fell. Three generations in whose eyes beauty was beheld, all because one unknown artist dared to put brush to canvas. What a shame 
if Erwin Ketterman had decided to bury his talent in the ground. To use one's gifts, to express one's gifts, is a daring thing. But at the end of the day, it is the safest of all of our bets that when we allow our gifts to be used, our talents, our creativity, our passions, our money, our time, when we allow our gifts to be used, we make the world a more beautiful place, more beautiful than it ever was. What lies under your mattress that you're not using? Your paintbrush, your bank statement, your knowledge, your wisdom, your camera, your writing, your green thumb, your love of children, your ability with math, your way around a car engine, and what are you afraid of? I suppose the only thing to be afraid of is when the master sees us and wonders why we held so much back. Dare I make this claim that the most beautiful art in the world is the art we find on our refrigerators. Painted, drawn, sketched by some little one, unafraid of its destiny. Just so proud to use that little gift within to share something beautiful with the world and to hear the joy and praise of some loving adult. Oh, isn't this so beautiful? Let's just hang it right up here on the refrigerator for all to see. I have 30-year-old refrigerator art displayed proudly on my office desk. And don't you wonder if this is, after all, really the heart of the master who knits into us these incredible and one-of-kind gifts that he hopes someday we will display for all to see, to carry on the creation he began long ago, to make the world even more beautiful than it ever was.